I was scrolling Instagram a while back and paused over a post. It was a screenshot of a quote Timothy Chalamet gave to Time magazine. He said that the term movie star is like death. It just makes him think about 90s nostalgia Instagram feeds. God, that made me feel old. Timothy Chalamet is 26, about the same age that Ben Affleck was during his breakout Goodwill hunting period, the era that started this series. Like Affleck, Chalamet is a prestige actor with undeniable off-screen charm. Here he is with co-star Zendaya doing an interview during their Dune promo tour. I'm sorry, I can't get over the fact that that's your middle name. Like, what? How shall. How shall. How shall. Yeah. yeah. It goes French, American, French. Timothy How Chalamet. Mommy, Dad, you f***ed me up! Chalamet Chalamet. In some ways, Chalamet has the 2022 version of young Ben Affleck's career. Or maybe the career Ben Affleck always wanted. But where once a young, buzzy Hollywood star would aspire to movie stardom, Chalamet sees it as deeply uncool, unappealing. How do we get to that place in the culture? Fame has changed so much over the past 10 or 20 years. Not too long ago, you'd stand at the Barnes & Noble magazine rack for hours, greedily scanning pictures of celebs. Now you can open your phone and see any picture of any celebrity you want. A person doesn't need a Vanity Fair cover to do a glitzy photo shoot. Instagram has made those common. Your cousin's sister's roommate's best friend who hawks gummies on Insta has her own glam squad for such occasions. Fame feels a little cheapened. Maybe that's what's running through Timmy's head. Or maybe it's just that he grew up and grew into a celebrity in the aftermath of the first decade of this century. The national obsession with all things Hollywood had gotten so whipped up that the A-list checked out and the D-list checked in. Or maybe it's also that the A-list started acting a little D-list. Movie stars did sort of become passe. I mean, we've still got some classic super-famous stars, but they hide out a lot more than Ben Affleck did in 2002, that's for sure. Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio sightings are now treated like the tabloid equivalent of a Kim Jong-un photo, so rare that they must be examined and speculated upon from every angle. And then there are the megastars that want to make us feel they're just like us. That kind of behavior makes some of us nostalgic for the days when the hierarchies of fame were more clear-cut. Here's Spencer Pratt. I don't want to relate to an A-lister. I want to be like, I want to go spend $50 in a movie theater and eat popcorn and red vines and feel like they're special. Like, that's why back in the golden days, Hollywood, they would literally lock these A-list celebrities in these houses and these mansions, be like, you can't come out for a month or whatever. You know, like it was that great because it was special to be seen. And it's like, now they are what they used to call Spidey. They're all fame whores, like ridiculous level. For me, fame in 2022 is a little less frothy and escapist. I came of age consuming Hollywood glamour magazine covers, myth-making stuff. Now, a lot of magazine content of famous people is directly from famous people, from their Instagrams. Often, they're doing boring at-home things or trying to sell me something or trying to promote their book club. It is emphatically not the escapism I'm looking for. It's more commercial and more ho-hum. Everyone has learned the 2000s playbook of monetizing the side hustle that is fame. Even the thespians aren't just in it for their art. 
They want to sell you face oil. It's turned the whole fame game in on itself. So again, how'd we get here? Where'd the fun all go? Or am I officially being an old millennial curmudgeon? From The Ringer, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. In 2010, the advice columnist Dan Savage started what he called the It Gets Better campaign. It was aimed at gay teenagers, a reaction to the suicide of a 15-year-old boy who was bullied by his schoolmates. Savage and his husband kicked off the campaign with a YouTube video that detailed the bullying they endured in high school for being gay. If there are 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds out there watching this video, what I'd love you to take away from it really is that it gets better. However bad it is now, it gets better. It Gets Better became something of a national phenomenon. President Obama contributed a video, though he wouldn't publicly come out in favor of gay marriage for another two years. Another famous person who made an It Gets Better message? Perez Hilton. It did not go over well. People were outraged that Perez, whose entire career was built on online bullying and who had sometimes outed gay celebrities, was weighing in. Things got so bad that he asked to appear on The Ellen DeGeneres Show to offer a mea culpa. I'm going to do things differently on my website than I have in the past. I'm not going to call people nasty nicknames. I'm not going to go the the mean route. I'm going to force myself to try and be funnier or smarter or or just do things differently, not doodle inappropriate things, not not out people, which I I have done all of those things in the past. And and let me just ask you this. It didn't happen overnight, but one thing that would characterize the next decade of life on the internet? Changing mainstream norms about what was acceptable online behavior. While comment sections and sites like Twitter and Tumblr definitely gave rise to trolls, legions of them, online publications, news and gossip alike, were slowly reconsidering what was an appropriate tone. 
many parts of the internet were getting more corporate, less Wild West. Perez wasn't the kind of person who would be setting the standard for acceptable discourse going forward. There's not a perfect cutoff point. Most big cultural shifts are gradual. But for a lot of people, the beginning of the 2010s marked a new era for celebrity coverage online. At least it did for Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger, the hosts of the podcast Who Weekly. They were growing up with the new internet. Here's Bobby. I feel like there was a transition to when I was reading celebrity blogs like Delisted, like, oh, no, they didn't like Lainey. Um, it was a time of day that I would be at my at my friend's house or be at my computer, open it up and deliberately go there. When I think about that next stage of celebrity gossip and just blogging, that's when I, you know, had an office job and was just on my computer all day. So it was like, I kind of think that that's a different, that was a different sort of stage. That just, that's just when it became part of everyday life in a way that it was used to be like sort of a little more siloed. Gossip was officially everywhere. The thing you read on your coffee break at your first job. For Lindsay and Bobby, this all came around the 2010-2011 mark. That was also when you got, like, interactive. I think it went from being, like, me reading Perez Hilton with my friends at the College Learning Center at NYU, which was, like, where was there one computer and we'd all, like, sit in front of it and, like, re- you know, look at Perez or, like, you know, just talk about stuff, look at my spaces, et cetera. And, and that's when, like, you know, I was starting to read, like, Richard Lawson's uh, recaps of Housewives. That was, like, the beginning of all that where it felt, like, a little bloggy, but not interacting in any meaningful way, right, aside from posting to my live journal, which had, like, you know, two followers. But then the next era, which Bobby talking about is kind of when things got interactive. And I think for a lot of people who are now our age or whatever, that's when it started being like, oh, you could like blog your own and really be part of like this ecosystem. The stage was being set for all that was to come. Immersive fan culture was about to blossom. Reddit boards with fan theories would proliferate about Bachelor contestants' motivations or the real reason behind housewives' firings. Recaps of reality shows would get their own lively commenters weighing in. There would be Tumblr accounts posting in-jokes that only a certain subset of Bravo viewers understood. People would become obsessed with a reality show that most other people in America didn't know or care about. But it didn't matter, because you'd be able to find your own community of other obsessives. The internet fed the end of the monoculture. Here's Matt James, the Gen Z internet archivist behind Pop Culture Died in 2009. So why did you pick out the year 2009 as the year everything? Because that was the year social media started coming to its own, where Twitter and Facebook and all of that started to blow up. And while there was still this semblance of a popular culture for several years afterwards, um, since sometimes I'll post about things that happened in 2010 or 11 or, you know, probably next year I'll post about stuff that also happened in 2012. That was the beginning of the end. And then I I would use uh, 2014, really, 2013, 2014-ish as the cutting off point where there really ceased to be a united culture anymore, except in these rare occurrences. The internet was growing. The monoculture was dying. But what else set us up for change in the new decade? 2010 saw the start of a site that would change the celebrity gossip world fundamentally. Instagram. 
On July 16, 2010, Kevin Systrom uploaded the first Instagram post. It was of a dog at a taco stand in Mexico. To be honest, it's a pretty lame picture. He labeled it test. C'est la vie. Historical turning points can't always be dramatic. Systrom and his partner Mike Krieger were two typical Silicon Valley types who had the simple idea to make photo sharing easier and better looking. They'd create an app that gave your friends access to that thing we all love, pictures. And it would make you look like a better photographer by giving you access to filters for the photos. The site quickly became popular. Here's a 2011 YouTube review by iJustine Reviews of the novel new app. Um, Now, the thing that makes Instagram different than Daily Booth or other photo sharing websites is it's not necessarily about taking pictures of you, which you can take pictures of yourself, that's fine, but it's more about taking pictures of things. There's a bunch of different filters that you can choose from that allow you to just make your pictures better. By 2011, celebrities like Britney Spears, Serena Williams, Drake, and Justin Bieber had joined. And in 2012, Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars. That's when things really started taking off. Instagram was about to shift the power dynamics of fame. Celebrity media had less power, big stars were able to control their images more, and the trickle-down effect on the fame industry was massive. Specifically, the magazine world and paparazzi industry would be fundamentally altered. The media gatekeepers were losing power. Jen Peros worked at Us Weekly for a lot of the 2010s, including a stint as the magazine's editor-in-chief. She's intimately familiar with how Instagram shifted things. Take, for instance, bread-and-butter tabloid coverage, a celebrity pregnancy. I feel like any celebrity today will just just announce it on their own terms on Instagram. But before the days of social media, when when celebrities really went to these glossy weeklies to announce their pregnancies in a big, fancy photo shoot— um, you know, that was also a good way to get those photo shoots, right? You'd call a publicist and say, hey, I hear she's pregnant. I'll make a deal. Like, we won't break that story today, but when she's ready to announce, we'll give her the full cover. It'll be a beautiful photo shoot. Um, and we'll announce the news how you want it and the way that you want it. That doesn't really happen now. And one could argue that tabloids not being able to dragoon celebs into spilling the beans on their babies is a good thing. But it's not as if people have stopped flogging motherhood for content. Celebrities are more apt to announce their pregnancy with a post on Instagram sponsored by Clear Blue Pregnancy Tests or some such. Or take Beyonce's 2017 Instagram announcement that she was pregnant with twins. The photo, which had a Botticelli Madonna meets David LaChapelle garden party aesthetic, went massively viral. It became the most liked post of that year, and every publication had to link to her account in order for readers to see it. Great earned media for Beyoncé, i.e. free advertising. Not even the once-powerful glossies have gone unaffected by the shift of power towards celebrities themselves. Take the celebrity profile, once a staple of the glossies. The genre still exists, but there are certain people who can get around it. Again, Beyoncé is a great example. She's a celebrity who's really figured out the benefits of scarcity in the Instagram age. She participates, but in a selective way. There hasn't been a classic profile of her for years. In 2018, 
she was on Vogue's September issue cover, the most important one of the year. But she wrote her own story rather than allow a journalist reported access. The New York Times's John Carmonica wrote a trend piece hooked to that magazine issue, pointing out that people like Taylor Swift and Drake were avoiding the profile treatment as well. Celebrities interviewing other celebrities with softball questions started replacing the profile. For example, Blake Lively talking to Gigi Hadid about women supporting women. A wonderful message, if not particularly revelatory or provocative. Celebrities seem incredibly happy with this turn of events. They're not going to get the hard questions or a journalist projecting something onto them or objectifying them, an unfortunate trope of male profilers in particular. There's also the fact that given how white the magazine industry is, some celebrities of color feel burned by past coverage. It seems key to point out that it took Beyonce's 2018 cover to get the first black photographer's image on the front of Vogue. The magazine is 130 years old. An interesting outgrowth of all this is fan behavior, how the masses are reacting to this new celebrity coverage paradigm. Celebs tend to their fan bases more carefully than ever, attuned to keeping their particular slice of the pop culture pie happy. Stan culture has flourished under these conditions, an at times unhinged devotion to your celebrity of choice. You could argue that standing isn't all just silly fun, but a permutation of the troll culture that's made its permanent home on the internet. After all, the Eminem song Stan, from which the term is derived, is about a deranged fan who becomes more and more detached from reality. Not exactly happy stuff. Spencer Pratt again. TikTok, I, I, for a second I started scrolling my TikTok comments because I just started being more on TikTok. I was like, oh my God, who, like, these are demons. Like, people need to, like, go bathe in holy water. <laughs> like, what is wrong with society? Like, it's so dark. This is coming from a guy who knows from haters. Jennifer Aniston agrees that standing has a nasty side to it, one she thinks is a passing of the torch from tabloids to regular people. She told The Hollywood Reporter in 2021 that it's almost like the media handed over the sword to any Joe Schmo sitting behind a computer screen to be a troll, or whatever they call them, and bully people in comment sections. Nobody wants anybody to be famous. The internet is legitimately all haters now, and everybody that films themselves thinks they should be famous more than in the history of the world. Basically, Spencer is saying fame is a real hustle these days, more than ever. There's a lot of segments of the culture to compete for now that the monoculture is over. It's so competitive psychologically, like... Now, like before, being on a television show seemed like you were special. It was important. Nobody could film themselves. Nobody had YouTube channels. Nobody had Twitter. Nobody had TikTok. Da, 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 da. So, like, there was still this mind, like, haters would still be like, why are they on my TV? But now it's more than ever, like, why are they on any of my platforms? Because yeah. people don't even watch TV. Lindsay and Bobby covered those hustling for fame on their podcast, Who Weekly. We used to call those people the D-list. In Lindsay and Bobby's vernacular, they're who's, as in, wait, who is that person? The A-list are thems. The podcast is a delight, in part because Lindsay and Bobby have managed to navigate critiquing celebrities without being nasty. 
I don't want to give ourselves too much credit. Yeah. But I do want to yeah, say, I think we had the privilege of hindsight. We lived through yes. the era that was really nasty. We participated in it by reading it, by sharing it, like by giving it page views and giving it a life. And then because we were fairly young at that point, like young adults in college, we got to see the repercussions of what that ecosystem did to people. And so we were able to learn from the mistakes of others, which I think is just is just very fortunate. It helps that the minor celebrities they want to cover, the Who's, are the people who want attention. It gives us not necessarily a hall pass, but it gives us a little peace of mind to know that, like, we try to talk about people who are really putting themselves out there, who are not happy with just Instagram fame, who want headlines at whatever cost. And, like, that's, you know, that's their journey. That's what they want. Like, cool. But it's just, it makes it easier. It, it takes away a lot of the, I don't know, what, what otherwise could have been, like, guilt, like, manifesting there. Like, if this had been 2008. If pop culture hadn't died roughly around 2009, well, monoculture pop culture, then Lindsay and Bobby wouldn't have nearly as much fodder. They astutely picked up on the fact that we had a lot more random celebrities floating around in the mid-2010s. Lindsay says the first real who's were the reality stars from the first decade of the 2000s, the ones that the tabloids started covering breathlessly around 2007, 2008. And then things just accelerated. Who Weekly was a newsletter originally, making fun of the way the tabloids of the 2010s were covering these increasingly obscure so-called celebs. Our original kind of gag was just from Us Weekly and like the magazines. We were like, specifically this covers. is a parody it was a Photoshop of... Gag. Yeah, this is a parody of old media. We think it's really funny the way that they still continue to talk about people as if it is 1994, but it is 2000, you know, and uh, what year did we start this? I don't know, 16, 15. And like the way and, and celebrity is so different then. So to say like do this headline where kind of this that, that assumes that we know who this person is in this like non-joking way is ridiculous. And that was our kind of thesis. <laughs> Us Weekly, once the Bible of gossip was increasingly a relic. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says, Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A, 
S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. As tabloids got a little more irrelevant over the past few years, a little more who-centric, they also started to reveal their dirty secrets to us. Mostly via this guy. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it. And I was given the message from the generals that the ships are locked and loaded. Like I said last episode, talking about Donald Trump's presidency is sort of inevitable in all this. Trump was made by the New York tabloids. They helped cement his persona as the wacky rich guy. And when he ran for president, he did what he'd been perfecting for years. He made headlines, any headlines, good or bad. And he got a little bit of a pass because we all knew him so well for his antics. Matt James. As crazy it might sound, Donald Trump was the last star we had, really. Somebody who could collectively bind us, maybe not in appreciation, um, but inspire endless stories and tabloids, inspire endless essays and articles and cable news coverage wondering what is he thinking what is he doing why does he do the things he does just like we do with any star and trump's presidency brought the tawdry ethics of the tabloid press to mainstream attention remember stormy daniels Our next guest from uh, movies that are too dirty to name and for having sex with the world's most notorious orange person. Her new (laughs) memoir is called Full Disclosure. Please welcome Stormy Daniels. In 2018, the Wall Street Journal reported that Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, had arranged for an $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels right before the 2016 election to keep her quiet about an extramarital sexual encounter she'd had with Trump in 2006. Daniels had given a 2011 interview to the tabloid In Touch, detailing what happened. But it wasn't published until years later, after the Wall Street Journal report. Here's Jared Shapiro, who would later serve as editorial director of In Touch and was an executive editor at Bauer Media, the magazine's owner at the time. We actually had Stormy Daniels. We had the interview. Um, We killed him, not because of pressure, but because Donald Trump was a 60-something-year-old washed-up billionaire who didn't sell magazines. So putting that story on the cover would not have sold. It financially did not make sense for us to print that story. So we never printed the Stormy Daniels interview. I have emails from Michael Cohen. We had phone calls from Trump phone calls from his office, Rona, and all those, all the assistants, don't run this story, we'll sue you. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't going to sell. In Touch is now owned by A360 Media, formerly known as AMI. The company also owns the National Enquirer, 
Star, and OK. Basically all the trashiest grocery store tabloids from when I was a kid. It pretty much controls the celebrity magazine market these days. When Bonnie Fuller left Us Weekly, she fled into AMI's arms, running Star and later serving as chief editorial director of AMI. David Pecker, the longtime publisher of AMI, is a friend of Trump. It later came out that he personally helped kill numerous unflattering stories about Trump. AMI would buy the stories from sources and then bury them, a practice called catch and kill. It's a journalistically unethical practice by mainstream standards, and in the context of a presidential election, it was also considered a potential violation of campaign finance laws. The Justice Department entered into a non-prosecution agreement with AMI in order to get details about the payments. I'm guessing you heard something about all this during the past four years. I asked Jared if, while he was working at AMI-owned Star Magazine, he felt pressure from above to kill certain stories. There were times when you would hear things through the grapevine, we can't print that story. Uh, There was a deal that AMI had with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was the owner of Weider Publications at the time, or like the publisher. What Jared is referring to here is an agreement that dates back to the early 2000s when Schwarzenegger was in the political spotlight as governor of California. AMI bought Weider Publications, which specialized in bodybuilding magazines and had a close relationship with Arnold Schwarzenegger as the sort of face of the brand. Years later, in 2011, the news would break that Schwarzenegger had fathered a child with a member of his household staff. So it would seem that he did have some secrets to keep, ones that could have affected his political prospects. To Jared, it was all relatively fair. It is what it is. You do deals. I don't think AMI owned anything to anyone. They weren't, uh, this wasn't the New York Times. It was gossip and tabloid. It was dirty. By the way, want to know who bought Us Weekly in 2017? You guessed it. AMI paid $100 million for the magazine. They've basically consolidated the tabloid market. Only People magazine really stands alone, though AMI wanted to buy it in 2017. To some, it felt like Us Weekly, which had made our guilty pleasure glossy and more socially acceptable, had succumbed to the lowest-brow tabloid forces. Very much the end of an era. The biggest change to the celebrity media ecosystem has undoubtedly come to the industry that lies at the foundation of everything, the paparazzi. Their jobs have fundamentally changed over the last 10 years. Jen Peros again. You know, everyone's a paparazzi these days. They're going to post it on their Instagram story, their Snapchat, their Facebook, their Twitter immediately. So it makes it really hard for entertainment outlets to break a story and, and also sell magazines. At your most recent stint at Us, what's the most you ever paid for a photo? Oh gosh, you know, my most us, you know, my most recent stint us that was 2017 to 2019. So definitely the days of, of throwing big, big money for photos were, were over by then. Um, but I would say, you know, today, if there was a good set of real paparazzi photos, they would probably sell anywhere from thirty to fifty thousand dollars. Back in the day, those shots were probably priced more in the six-figure range. 
When I asked Jen what kind of photos might fetch a thirty to $50,000 price tag these days, she said it would be something that confirms a big rumor. The first images of Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, or Irina Shayk and Kanye West walking together in France. My second sin at us, like the, the first photo of Katie Holmes and Jamie Foxx had come out together. So for like a year or two, there was always these rumors that the two of them were dating. And then the first time that we actually saw them holding hands and kissing on a beach, I mean, it just made it so much more real. So that was definitely a big get. Celebrity control and Instagram are huge reasons why photos go for less these days. Simple supply and demand. And today, there's not nearly the paparazzi industry that there once was. One person told me there were maybe 20 regular paparazzi photographers working in L.A. these days. Randy Bauer, the paparazzi agency owner we met on episode two, told me that paparazzi made bad business decisions during the rise of the Internet and set standards for themselves that would ultimately make their work much, much harder to sustain. You could also say that the change was inevitable. As in all parts of the modern economy, corporate consolidation came to the paparazzi business, and they didn't see what was coming for them until it was too late. Magazines and websites that were owned by large companies didn't want to negotiate for every picture that appeared. Here's Randy Bauer. Eventually, the websites uh, that were owned by these big publishing conglomerates and and, uh, they wanted to make a big push, they decided on some type of a model, which was a subscription model, which was, we don't want to do all this accounting for all these hundreds and thousands of images. Websites wanted to pay a monthly flat fee for unlimited access to photos. No more big bidding wars over exclusives. It was a great deal for the publishing conglomerates and a bad deal for the agencies and photographers. Well, the thing is, most of the players in the business were not good businessmen. Most of the photographers, most of the agencies, not good business people at all. And um, there have been numerous times where there was an effort made to not unionize, but to have the major agency players have an agreement and stand by it with the publishers and kind of set a standard. That standard-setting tactic by the paparazzi agencies never really panned out. Randy said the cutthroat, competitive nature of paparazzi meant that none of them really trusted each other. They couldn't help but screw each other over. Eventually, a lot of photographers got out of the game. The industry remains in trouble. Instagram presents a unique set of challenges to paparazzi. It's not just that celebs can post photos they take themselves. It's that sometimes celebrities do what Perez Hilton and the other early bloggers used to do. Grab paparazzi images of themselves off the internet and post them without paying for them. That's a whole loaded debate. It might sound ridiculous at first blush, but paparazzi agencies have started suing celebrities like Jennifer Lopez, Khloe Kardashian, Lisa Rinna, and Dua Lipa for putting paparazzi photos of themselves on their Instagrams without paying. If that sounds like a refracted funhouse mirror of what fame is, well, yeah, I think that's about right. But the PAPs also have pretty good cases for copyright infringement. Perhaps no two people have campaigned harder against the paparazzi industry than Prince Harry and Meghan Markle over the past few years. 
In new court documents obtained by ET Canada, the couple claimed paparazzi drone photos of their 14-month-old son, Archie, taken in the backyard of their L.A. home, are being shopped around. And falsely labeled as being from a recent Malibu outing in order to skirt California privacy laws. The couple is suing for invasion of privacy, listing John Doe as the defendant since they don't actually know who took the photos of Archie. X-17 took those photos. Remember, the guys who were the Britney Spears specialists? They ended up issuing a public apology to the couple and paying for some of their legal fees. Splash News, once one of the biggest paparazzi agencies, declared bankruptcy in the spring of 2021 after being sued by Meghan Markle for photographing her with her son Archie while on a walk in a park. In fact, Harry and Meghan have gone on something of a lawsuit spree against the tabloids. They've sued numerous British papers for defamatory coverage, much of which felt freighted with racist undertones. For Prince Harry, the demise of the paparazzi and tabloids is nothing but personal, given the way his mother died. Here he is speaking about her in a BBC documentary. She'd had a quite a severe head injury, but she was very much still alive on the back seat. And those people that, that caused the accident, instead of helping, were taking photographs of, of her dying on the back seat. And then those photographs made, made their way back to, uh, to news desks. In 2019, he wrote, I've seen what happens when someone I love is commoditized to the point that they are no longer treated or seen as a real person. I lost my mother, and now I watch my wife falling victim to the same powerful forces. That commodification of famous people that Harry is talking about here is very real. Harry and Meghan have made for a fascinating, if at times confounding, example of modern fame by both participating in and pushing back against that commodification. The couple's desire for privacy runs headlong into their need to make money and maintain a platform for their charitable work. The fame that they seem to hate so much also allows them to lead a very nice life, which involves chickens and a sprawling Montecito estate. For me, Harry's story is a perfect encapsulation of the tortured way so many of us look at celebrity. You've got real sympathy for Harry the human, wanting his privacy. But then he's also penning a tell-all book for large sums of money and doing an explosive primetime special with Oprah. Please explain how you, Prince Harry, raised in a palace, in a life of privilege, literally a prince, how you were trapped. Trapped within the system, like the rest of my family are. My father and my brother, they are trapped. (laughs) They don't get to leave. And I have huge compassion for that. Harry and Meghan don't exactly act like people shying away from the limelight, from the commodification of fame. They hate this system, but they're also trapped in it by need. And the fame system needs them too. One thing you can probably say for sure about Harry and Meghan is that they're among the few celebrities who elicit strong opinions across vast swaths of the population. Old, young, liberal, conservative people have feelings about them. They are among the last vestiges of the monoculture. What's the old saw? Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people. I might make an addendum to that. 
honest minds admit they discuss all three. And certain stories stick with people. When you think of that early kind of that, that 2000s era that we've been talking about, what's the most emblematic story to you? I think the New York Post Bimbo Summit um, front page uh, was a moment that sticks out. It was Paris Hilton's arrest. That story and all the, the, the different things that happened afterwards with her being sent to jail and like her coming out of her house and crying in the car and, you know, the, 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 the madness around it and the, the helicopters following her all the way to jail for her to then like turn around and walk out and then have to go back a couple days later. Mel Gibson or anything Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan or Paris going to jail. A stretch Hummer limousine pulls up and disgorges Paris Hilton. Uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina in that desert on that like, oh, how did the paparazzi find them in the middle of the desert when they were first revealed as a couple, like after Mr. And Mrs. Smith? Like, I know the whole story for that too. Like, that was a setup. Uh, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Jennifer Aniston. No question. Probably Britney at two in the morning. It's that whole Britney Spears meltdown time, that era that kind of gets all of the attention when anyone talks about that time. So Adnan is like hanging out of the V8 car, shooting photos, and I'm driving like 100 miles an hour, 25 years old, riding this big V8, and Ben Affleck and J-Lo are on a motorbike going 120 miles an hour in front of me. But yeah, it was just like yellow stretch Hummer limousine at Sundance felt very... Very 2000. Very 2004. The 2000s tabloids were about excess. Partying, bling, outre characters. They whetted our imaginations with pictures of bobble-filled lives, head-over-heel loves, and let us dream and escape ho-hummery. Not everything needed to be important and socially conscious. In fact, it was preferable if it wasn't. A lot of celebs and tabloid characters returned the favor of frivolous coverage by acting as outrageous as they could. It was a decade of public performance art that Andy Warhol would have loved to see. Excessive fun at all costs. And there were costs. Celebrities seemed more like cardboard cutouts than real people. The tabloids and the internet of that era were more escapist and wild. You didn't have to read politics stories in your trash magazine. But the industry also crossed lines and ruined lives. And maybe trained a couple of generations that the bile you spew online won't have any real-life ramifications. We realized too late that the Internet had become real life, and we had filled it with lots of people with that cardboard cutout mentality. Those tabloids birthed a decade of nonstop fun, but they also hastened the death of public empathy. Gossip is thinking about other people. In the end, it can be the noise that distracts you from what's going on inside your head. But the people who don't pay attention to other people are, in my experience, the worst kind of people. Or, at the very least, the unfun ones at parties. It can't be theories of relativity and the meaning of life all the time. Or is it that gossip is a little meaning of lifey? Ben, does gossip have any virtue? Absolutely. Ben Whittacombe, 
former gossip columnist. What is it? So, you know, humans are a hierarchical species. We're as hierarchical as ants or bees. And it is inbuilt into us that we need to know where we stand, where our status is relative to our fellow bees. And gossip tells us that. It gives us information that we might be able to use against people of, you know, greater status. And it also gives us news of downfalls of people who are better than us, which gives us incredible satisfaction because we're a competitive hierarchical species. And again, I don't moralize about that. Some people think it's a terrible moral wrong to feel schadenfreude, to feel good about a rich and powerful person, you know, suffering a setback. If that's your moral outlook, fine. You you can make your own moral judgment. But as a species, we're biologically hardwired to want to know where we fit in. So I think that's fine. I guess that takes us back to where we began. Tabloids show us as we are, not who we want to be. And honestly, isn't it good to know where you stand? Just Like Us, The Tabloids That Changed America was written and reported by me, Claire Malone, with story editing by Amanda Dobbins. The show was executive produced by Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our producers are Amanda Dobbins, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Hansdale Shi. The music is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Juliana Ress. Our art director is David Shoemaker. Illustration by Michael Weinstein. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.